you're glad that God can make a way. We want to welcome you to our fall launch Sunday. If you'll notice, there's a table over here with a lot of sign-ups. And what that's for is our theme for fall launch is what is your next step? And we're asking everyone to kind of look at where you're at in your spiritual life and uh, think about your next step. So we've got at least 11 different small groups you can sign up for. Some of them, many of them are on Sunday morning, some are throughout the week. Uh, We have at least two that meet in homes. And our goal is for you to find out where you're at on your spiritual journey and take the next step. So if you have a chance after the service, we have a discipleship pathway. It's a little trail. Some of you have seen it. And it's basically four steps on the pathway. The first one is active. And we're encouraging everybody to become active in weekly worship. And we know worship is not something you do on Sunday. It's something you do throughout the week. But we want to encourage you to get active, get back in the habit of attending church faithfully, because that's where you get fellowship, accountability, worship, you hear God's word, so that's important. For those of you who do attend regularly, step two, we call that um, getting connected. We encourage everyone to get connected to a life group, and we have many different ones for men, for women, for couples, for youth, for children, for all ages. So if you're not in a life group, after service, I want to encourage you to just take a few minutes and sign up. We've got many different ones, and there's a description about each one. And step three is called embrace. And it's realizing that we've got to embrace our place. All of us have a gift, and we can serve and give. And many of you have wondered, you know, what, what is God's purpose for me? And how can I get involved? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because there's so many ministries at the church. We call them serve teams. From women's ministry to men's ministry to hospitality to you name it. There's, there's a ton of, ton of ways to get involved. And some of you are like, well, Timothy, I'm already doing step one, two, and three. Well, the challenge for you is step four is to multiply. A spiritually healthy disciple makes other disciples. So the kind of the challenge I've given you pretty much since day one here at the church is what if everyone at Arden First multiplied themselves? What if we all led someone to Christ? And we took them along the same pathway of worship and discipleship. What would happen is our community would be a different place. Amen. So today's sermon, if you have your listening guide, you can take it out. Your Bibles are going to be in Isaiah 43. We're going to talk about how God is, it's interesting, he doesn't change, but he loves change for us. It's kind of the divine paradox. The God who doesn't change loves for us to change. So kind of giving you a little preview, we're going to talk about kind of the state of the church, where we're at, where we've been, and where we're going to go. And we're going to look at Isaiah 43 about how the children of Israel, um, God had done many amazing things in their past. And then God tells them something, hey, don't get caught up on the past, because I'm the God of the new. I'm doing new things all the time. Are you not aware of it? And uh, just like the children of Israel loved what God had done in the past, and sometimes they lived in the good old glory days, Many of us can do the same. You'll hear stories about great tent revivals that happen here in Asheville. And I hear stories about Ralph Sexton and the tent revivals and, you know, great revivals that happen. And those people call the good old days. But aren't the good old days right now? Can't God do something right here and right now? And that's what Isaiah is trying to get us, that I am the God of the new. I don't change, but I love to create change in you. So if you will, turn with me to Isaiah 43. We're going to read verses 14 through 21, and we're going to talk about how this applies to you personally, how God wants to do something inside of you, and we're also going to kind of give the state of the church address, what God's doing here at Arden first, 
and what lies ahead perhaps for the next year. So you guys ready to jump into God's word? Say amen. All right, you guys are awake now. Verse 14, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send down to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. I love verse 18. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Someone say a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give water in the desert and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask and pray as we look at it, what it meant to the children of Israel and what it means to us personally, and also what it means to Arden First. We pray that you would speak to your hearts. We pray that we would have a dream and a vision as we look into this text. We ask and pray your blessing on your word. Change us personally and change us as a church. And may we never be the same again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So every, every year, most churches do what's called a Vision Sunday, or some churches call it the State of the Church Sunday. And for us, we've chosen the fall because that's really when people get back into the rhythm of life. For those of you who have kids and grandkids, they're back in school. For many who are traveling, they're getting back from vacationing. And what, what we're trying to do is kind of give you guys a preview of what God could do in this church as well in your life. So we're going to talk about five components of a compelling vision. And as Martin Luther said, I have a dream, we're going to say we have a dream as a church. So let's hear, we have a dream. Let's hear, one, two, three. We have a dream. Number one, a compelling vision starts with a correct view of God. I love verses 14 and 15. If you want to have a big vision, it's got to start with God, and God has to be at the center of your dream and your vision. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. If you notice, God is the Lord. He is the covenant God. He's the one who keeps his promises. Anytime you see the Lord all caps in your Bible, it means that God is faithful to keep his promises. He is Yahweh. He's the covenant God. So God's saying, listen, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who keeps my promises. So before any of that, know that. Then he says, I'm your Redeemer. He's the one who bought you out of the slave market of sin in order to set you free. Aren't you glad that when you seem like you don't know what to do, when you're looking down, God all of a sudden has a rope. You guys remember the rope? And he throws you the rope and he rescues you and redeems you. And all of a sudden you feel like, wow, I was at the rock bottom. But you know what? God lifted me up. He lifted me out of the miry clay and gave me hope. And that's the word redeemer. Notice it says he's the holy one. Isn't it interesting that even though apart from Christ we're not holy, when the holy one comes into our lives, he makes us holy. 
And we're there positionally and we become holy practically in our everyday lifestyle. Have any of you ever been to Japan, by show of hands? Any Japan? Okay, that's on my to-do list. I haven't been there yet. But they have this special pottery. And this pottery is so unique because what they do is they take cracked pieces of pottery and they use gold to fill it in and to remold it. And part of the Japanese expression is there's beauty in your brokenness when it comes together. And they take broken pieces and all of a sudden they make a beautiful artwork that sometimes is more valuable than a piece that had never been broken. Whenever you encounter the Redeemer, the Holy One, He takes your broken lives. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, He takes the broken pieces and He puts it back together again. And that's the power of that. We are all just cracked pots until the Lord gets a hold of us. So if you came to this church saying, Timothy, I'm far from perfect, welcome to the club. We are not perfect, we're just forgiven. And because of His holiness, He gives it to our account when we receive Him. He is the Holy One. Amen. On your listening guide, look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For God, for He made Him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Isn't that beautiful? That all of your sin He put on Christ. So having a compelling vision starts with having a right view of God. He's the Holy One. He's the Redeemer. Notice in that verse it says he's our creator. Did you know the creator is the only one who can recreate you? Did you know that unless you're in a hard time, you don't need a miracle? So if you're going through a hard time right now, you may be just a good candidate for a miracle. Because if life is good, you don't need a miracle. And I'm speaking to some in this room today that you need a miracle. You need God to step into your time and space, rewrite your human history Because guess what? He can do a new thing. Amen? Number two, a compelling vision doesn't live in our past victories. A compelling vision does not live in our past victories. Verse 16, it says, Thus says the Lord, He who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. See, what this is talking about is Israel's greatest miracle to this point. Does anybody know what it was? The exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. Now, can you imagine the Israelites? Can you imagine a pastor saying, hey, forget about what God did in the past? And he's not saying forget about not remembering it to that point. When he says don't remember it, he says don't live in there. Because I'm the great I am. It's not that I was the great I was. Now, I was there, but I'm the God right here, right now. And how many of us are so prone to live in the good old glory days? The children of Israel... They were living in the past because God had parted the Red Sea. They had crossed the Jordan River at flood stage. They had seen all these miracles, manna, for 40 years. They had seen miracle atop a miracle. And the prophet Isaiah says, hey, you know, don't remember the former things. And we're going to see that in a few verses. But it says, he who brings the chariot and the horse, the army and the power, they lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quit." Quenched like a wick. Now, when you think about it, God can make a way when there's no way. You think about the parting of the Red Sea. They were between a rock and a hard place, right? Pharaoh and his soldiers were coming, and they were at a body of water, and there's no way. And all of a sudden, Moses sticks out his rod, the rod of God, and parts the Red Sea. 
How many of you need God to part the Red Sea in your life? You, you feel like, man, my job's not working out. This relationship, this marriage is struggling. The same God that parted the Red Sea can do that for your life. The same God who made a way for the Israelites, perhaps two, three million, if not more Israelites, can make a way for you. What about the church? Has God done great things in our past as a church? Absolutely. I've heard many stories about 10, 20, 30, 40, some of you 50 years ago, how this sanctuary used to be filled and overflowing. How we have 28 Sunday school rooms, how they were filled to capacity. Those were the good old days. But what about today? Is God able to do something new? And the, the, the answer is absolutely. God is doing something new. And I just want to recount what God has done. And he gets all the glory through the church. Uh, over the past year, the church has gone through a lot of uh, what I call upgrades. Um, a lot of new things. Um, just looking down in the fellowship hall when I first came. The fellowship hall, there was stained carpet and you know things weren't looking the best. And all of a sudden the church rallied, came through. Now there's new tile. Now there's a new sound system down there. Now our Wednesday night service is, is alive and exciting. We've added dinner. Miss Diana, I don't know where she's at, but, you know, started cooking. And all of a sudden, everyone's showing up now on Wednesday nights. Uh, the church has really grown. Um, when I think about the kids' wing, and we realize the kids' ministry's growing, we've got to do something for the next generation. And the church rallied together again. And we've got a whole brand new redesigned kids' wing. When I look at the breezeway here, um, if you remember, just a little over a year ago, it was just a hallway. And now it's like a coffee lounge and people are fellowshipping and hanging out. And sometimes we have to drag you guys in here because church has started and you love fellowshipping. And that's a good thing. That's, that's why we created that. Um, and I could go on and on how God is doing a new thing. Uh, J.D. and I were talking this morning how the Lord has grown the church. We are almost doubled of what it was just over a little year ago and it continues to grow. God is doing new things. So... When we look at that, is it, is it easy to, to live on your past victories? Is it easy to say, look at the Red Sea, God, look what you did. It's so easy to have a, a success in the Lord and just rest on that. But you know, the prophet says, I did this and God did it in an amazing way. But you can't live in the past. You can only live in the present. And so many of you know people in your lives, they lived back in the 1960s. You remember when I was a senior in high school and this happened? And those were good days, but you know what? You're in today. What does God want to do in your life today? Amen? God can turn a roadblock into a ramp. He can turn a setback into a setup. So when you look at these scriptures, I love it. It says, he made a path through the mighty waters. He brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power Notice it says they lie together. They lie down together, extinguished like a wick. In other words, your greatest enemy. When there seems to be no way, God can make a way. But also, did you know that on your pathway to destiny in your life and as a church, there's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be enemies that arise. And God says, no enemies too great that I'm not greater still. God can make a way and he can flatten the enemies that lie in your pathway. Amen. Number three, a compelling vision is so big that it eclipses your past victories. I use that word because we just saw the eclipse recently, right? And you think about an eclipse, it blocks out the past. So your victories, look at verse 18. It says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. 
How many of you remember studying the Vikings in um, school and uh, civilization studies, world history? Well, there's a lot of different theories, and we're not sure exactly what happened to them, so it's speculation. But recent archaeology has found interesting discoveries of the Vikings. First of all, a little history about them. They lived about a thousand years ago, and they were led by Eric the Red. He set, set sail from Norway, and he came to the large landmass, as you might know what it was called today, Greenland. And the Vikings grew as a colony. They were there for about 450 years. They grew to about 5,000 people, and then they vanished. And archaeologists and scientists have asked, what, is, what happened to the Vikings? I mean, they were you know, mighty warriors, uh, seafaring people. and I mean, they looked like big, tough men and women. What happened to such stout people? And according to archaeology, it gives one suggestion. The Vikings loved to eat meat. In fact, they had a lot of cows. And um, whenever the resources began to wane, um, they, they, they were so sold on meat that they didn't want to eat other stuff. In fact, archaeology has found there were hardly any evidence of fish skeletons in, in their land, which is surprising because, if you know, Greenland is surrounded by fish. And we don't know for certainty, but uh, many have speculated that they end up dying because they refused to eat anything but meat. They didn't want to eat the fish because meat was seen as the status symbols. And their pride got to them. Uh, Jared Diamond, um, who wrote How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed, says this. Societies fail because they turn inward, perpetuate their cultural model at all costs, and merely try to hold on and survive. And if the, the archaeology leads us to this conclusion, perhaps this is what happened to the Vikings. They wanted to hold on to their ways of eating, and they weren't willing to change. They died off. So let me ask you a question. Do churches ever struggle with the same mentality? We try to hold on to a certain way of doing something, and then churches collapse. I was reading a startling stat. Um, according to one survey, every year 4,000 churches close every year, and only 1,000 new churches are planted. So you think about that. The, the population is growing, but church attendance and churches are decreasing. And you've got to ask Why? Has the gospel lost its power? Absolutely not. Has the Bible changed? Absolutely not. Why? Why? Do you think maybe it's perhaps we're stuck in the good old glory days and we're not seeing the God who wants to do something right now? You notice in verse 18, it says, Do not remember the former things. Sometimes your past victories can be the enemy of your future victories. Now look at the children of Israel. We had mentioned some of the things. Um, David mentioned on the front row, they got past Pharaoh and the Exodus. Was that a pretty big thing? That was huge. The parting of the Red Sea. Um, whenever the children of Israel were in the wilderness 40 years, who provided for them manna? The Lord did. Whenever they got in the promised land and had to cross the Jordan River, who parted the Jordan River? The Lord did. Um, numerous enemies were bigger, badder, and had more money than they did. But yet, God allowed them victory. So how can the prophet Isaiah say to the children of Israel, don't remember the former things? Now, he's not saying don't think about them. He's saying don't live in the past. Because if you live in the past, you're not experiencing what God, God has for you now. And he says, nor consider the things of old. 
Um, Philippians 3, and I have this in your listening guide, 12 through 14. Now, if you think about Paul, he had done many things in his past. Some were very good, like he achieved being a Pharisee of Pharisees and zealous and memorizing much of the Old Testament. But some of it was bad, you know, martyring Stephen, being a part of that, consenting to his death. Now, listen to what Paul's conclusion was in his life. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. Someone say press on. You notice Paul was all about progress. I'm not sitting down. I'm not camping in the tents I've made. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. And here's the picture. God has laid hold of every Christian for a reason. Everyone that can pass the mirror test. You know what the mirror test is? If you put a mirror in front of you and you fog it up, it means you're still alive. You're still breathing. If you can pass the mirror test, you still have destiny. So he says, as long as I have breath, I got to realize God has captured me for something. And I got to go after that. My calling. And notice verse 13. Brethren, I do not consider myself to apprehend it. In other words, I haven't arrived. No Christian should ever think he or she has arrived. You have not arrived until you have arrived on the other side. I have not arrived, but one thing I do. Notice, not ten things I do, not twenty, not my top thirty. One thing, forgetting those things which are behind. Notice the word forgetting is present tense. So in other words, your past, both bad and good, you have to put behind you. Because it's easy to live in the good old glory days, but it's also to live in the guilt and shame of your past. But notice, we can live in the good old glory days, but we also can live in our failures as well. And if God has forgiven you, does he want you to live in the past failures as well? Absolutely not. I forget those things which are behind me. And notice, I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So friend, sister, brother in Christ, until you arrive on the other side, you can't stop moving forward. You, you have not arrived until you've arrived on the other side. But, Pastor, you don't understand. I don't like change. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because most of us would. It's been said that no one likes change except for a wet baby. They love their diaper change. But the rest of us don't like change. So I'm going to give you five reasons why most of us resist change. And if you're convicted on these, most of us are. This is this human nature. This would be if we were sitting down with a counselor, they would give us one of these five would apply. The first one is nostalgia. I miss the good old days. Now, you've never said this, but how many have ever heard, I remember back in the 1960s when, or I remember back in the 1980s when. Anybody ever, you ever heard anyone, not you, but someone say that? <laughs> All the time. And the funny thing is we even get caught up in music and the radio station. I love the 1980s music sometimes. Pandora, you can put on the 1980s. What is your station you like? 70s? And you like, when like 50s music? Yeah, some of you do. But that just goes to show the, the good old glory days. The problem with that is the good old days weren't that good. You and I tend to have a selective memory. Sometimes I'll remember back in early days of ministry and doing this or that. I'm like, man, the good old days. And Lori's like, Timothy, they weren't that good. Do you remember this, this, this happened? And I'm like, oh. Forgot about all those bad things. I just remember the good old days. So some of us fall into nostalgia. The problem is we have a selective memory. Number two, comfort. I know what I know and I don't know what lies ahead. The problem with comfort, does God ever promise us comfort in this side of eternity? 
<laughs> no. Actually, John 16.33 says, in this world you'll have trouble. That sounds quite the opposite of comfort. So we can't, we can't get, I'm just comfortable. That's, that's not promise. Sacrifice. If you have paid the price in the past, and I've heard not just in this church, but many churches, I've already paid my dues. It's time for someone else to step up. Do you ever retire from ministry? I've never seen it in the Bible. You're always serving God forever, this side or the next. The problem with sacrifice is Christ gave his entire life. So we've got to give our entire life from beginning to end until the day we die. And for those who are like, well, I don't, I'm, I'm really physically struggling. I don't know what to do. You know, the most powerful thing anyone can do is pray. I mean, we won't know until we get to heaven, but some of the probably greatest rewards will be for shut-ins who couldn't get out and pray. And their prayers changed heaven and earth and people's lives because of the power of prayer. Amen. What about selfishness? I like where we are. And if others don't like it, they can get over it. We would never come out and say that maybe in that blunt terms, but do we think that? Uh, when I was first pastor, I've only been here a year and a half, so I'm still in the honeymoon season. It's been great. But um, when I, my first six months, I visited one of the shut-ins. I think she's in her 80s. I didn't ask her age. My mom always told me never ask a woman her age. So I, I'm assuming she's in her 80s. And... In the visit, she gave me a challenge. She said, Timothy, what are you, what is the church going to do to reach the next generation? And I was kind of like, wow, I didn't expect her to say that. And she challenged me, what are you, what are you going to do? So I asked you the question that she asked me, what are you going to do to reach the next generation? That's something really to think about. Um, the, the fifth one, and this is easy for any of us to get into, is the good enough philosophy. And the good enough philosophy goes something like this. If it was good enough for grandma, it's good enough for me. Now, that may sound good, but do you really do you really live by that philosophy? I would propose to you that none of you here do, because if you still live by that, you'd be riding horse and buggy. You'd still be eating over open fire stove, open fire, no stove. Um, you'd still be washing your clothes in the creek. I mean, fresh water, right? Good. You still have an outhouse. You wouldn't have a television. So none of us really live by that philosophy except when it comes to church, right? It was good enough for grandma. Now, the caveat to that, the message never changes. The Bible's the same. The problem is, is how we see it and how we understand it is your soul language. How many of you have ever heard the song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver gold? Do you know that's one of the number one requested songs at funerals? Does anybody know who sang that? George Beverly Shea. I heard a story this week that blew me away. I didn't know the background of the song, but basically this song was written, um, I can't remember the exact date, it was like the 1940s, 50s, really early. And it was written, it was inspired by a poem written by someone else, but George Beverly Shea put the tune to it. And when the song first came out and became popular through the Billy Graham Crusade, did you realize that song got criticism? People thought it was too jazzy, too upbeat. Um, too much like the world's tune. Seriously. And the young people in their 20s and 30s who were singing it said, this is just my heart singing out to God. And I don't know, it may have a little bit of beat, but this is just me reaching out to God. And the pastor who gave the story said, isn't it interesting? The same people in the 1940s and 50s that love that now are saying the same thing to the people in their 20s. Like, I don't like it because of the beat. Well, don't forget George Beverly Shea. 
He was progressive for his day and time, right? So he says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. So verse 18 doesn't mean you don't have good memories of the past. Verse 18 says you don't live in the past. Because God is the great I am. He's the God of the now. Number four, a compelling vision paints a picture of what could be and what should be. Verse 19 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And by the way, for those of you who heard my first sermon, this is one of the first sermons I gave, but this is completely different than the one I gave. So much uh, layers in this, this text. But it says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now you think about the paradox we said at the beginning. The God who does not change loves to change us. He loves to make change in our world. And he says, Now it shall spring forth. In other words, don't live in the past because right now, in 2017, as you read this old prophetic scripture, it has relevancy to your life. Now, it has relevancy to the church, but it has relevancy to your life. Some of you, God has done great things when you're in your 20s and 30s. God has done great things in your 40s and 50s. But what about now? Does God ever change? Doesn't it say, sing to the Lord a new song? It says that we are new creations in Christ. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God is full of new things. And he says, I'm doing something that maybe you're not even aware of. But it's the power of now. Notice it says, now it shall spring forth. Did you realize that even as I speak on this September morning, God is doing something new? The problem is if we're living in the past victories, we're not aware of it. But God is doing new things around the world. People are getting saved. Lives and hearts are changing. The revival going on in other parts of the world because God is doing a new thing. So let me ask you two questions by application. In your life, in your family, where do you want to be one year from now? Just one year, in the next 12 months, personally. Where do you want to be? Some of you would be like, well, I'd love to get out of debt. I'd love to, you know, a lot of New Year's resolutions. But where do you want to be? Is God able to do something new? Absolutely. Now, in our church, if God does something new, where will we be this time next year? When we do fall launch 2018, wouldn't it be amazing to see this church packed out? Wouldn't it be amazing to see two services? And, you know, I was thinking recently, you know, and this is back to the 80-year-old the that challenged me. Wouldn't it be nice if Arden First was a church for all generations? where everyone could worship God in a way that they connected with God? Wouldn't it be amazing what if that your kids and grandkids just beat down the doors to come to church? I mean, that's something that God wants to do because he wants every man, woman, and child to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The message never changes, but the methods have to change so that we can speak the soul language of a new generation. Amen. And finally, anybody getting fired up yet? Maybe I'm the only one. All right. Some people are getting fired up here. Well, I close with the fire. Point five. A compelling vision is bigger. Someone say bigger. Than one's greatest imaginations. How many dreamers do I have out there? Do I have any dreamers? You know, something I talk to the Wednesday night crowd a lot. And by the way, if you miss Wednesday night, you miss a lot. Because I tell, I tell them stuff I don't tell you. So just saying. There's some secrets there. Um, some, some stories and different things. But... One thing I talked to the Wednesday night crowd about, isn't it interesting that it says in the last days the Holy Spirit will come 
and it says young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Now, isn't dreaming dreams the sport of a young man or young woman? Why is it that when the Holy Spirit comes, people start dreaming again? Because a dream is meant to live beyond your lifetime. You may lead someone to Christ and they may become the next Billy Graham. You may do something small and it may have a ripple effect that still continues on 200 years after you're gone if the Lord tarries. Old men and women dream dreams. Okay, let's look at the text. It says, I will make a road in the wilderness. Now, notice how God reverses the exodus. And by the way, one thing I didn't point out, this is really cool. Um, According to scholarship, conservative scholarship, this prophecy was given at least 120 to 140 years before Israel got carried into Babylon. And they were in captivity, I believe, 70 years. So Isaiah prophesied this 200 years before it happens. And it did happen in history. 200 years before it happened. So, wow. Isn't God amazing that he can predict things before they happen? But it says, I will make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So here's the imagery. The first exodus... From, from Egypt, God made a way in the waters. The second exodus, they're going to have to go through miles of desert. So instead of making a way through the waters, he's going to make waters in the way. So they'll have something to drink along the way. <laughs> and there's, there's five insights from this scripture that I think we should apply. So the first, we talked about why I resist change. Now here's five reasons why you should embrace change from this text. Why you should embrace a God-given vision that he puts for your family, your life, and for this church. You guys ready to hear him? Alright, the first one is this. We've already mentioned this and we sang a song about it. God will make a way when there's no way. So some of you resist change because it's too hard, right? Well, if God can make a way through the waters and he can deliver the children of Israel out of Babylon back to their native land, hundreds of miles away through the desert, God will make a road in the wilderness. He will make a way when there's no... So you're like, I can't? That's okay, because when you can't, God always can. Kind of get, "Uh uh-huh. Number two, God will make a provision for the vision. We'll make provision for the vision. Some of you are like, we don't have... Think about your life person. I don't have enough money. You know, I asked the question, if money was not an option, no no limitation, you could dream, what would you do? Like, I can't think that big. And in church, we say, we don't have the money. Let me read this text again. Rivers in the desert. Now, a desert is a dry place where there's no sustenance. But God can make rivers run through your desert. So every God-given vision has God-given provision. So never let resources. Think about who owns the cattle. What is it, on 10,000 hills? Or something like that. I mean, he owns it all. So never let money limit your vision. Number three, God's vision is so big that it overflows onto others. Now, I love verse 20. Verse 20 will make even a First Baptist white preacher want to run the aisle, shout, even maybe make a Methodist spin around. It says, the beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. So, okay, jackals and these wild animals, what do they have to do with God making a way when there's no way and rivers to the death? I mean, to talk about animals in this text seems a little out of place, right? Here's the imagery. Whenever the children of Israel were delivered from Babylon, they had to go through many miles, hundreds of miles of desert. And the scripture says God made rivers run through areas where there were no water. 
And the blessing was so big and so great that even the animals are going to get in on the overflow of your blessing. So, many of us have a scarcity mentality. Well, I, I can't. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't have enough money. God says, I want to bless you so much. The rivers are so great that even the wild animals are going to get in on the blessing. So the blessing is bigger than you. The blessing is bigger than your lifetime. What would happen if you dreamed a dream that was inside of a dream that was inside of a dream that lived beyond your lifetime? That would be a gospel kingdom-oriented vision. That a generation yet to see, yet to be here, would see and know the one true God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Number four, of God's vision quenches our true thirst. Notice in verse 20, it says, To give drink to my people. He is the living waters. He's the only one that can quench your thirst. We can drink the waters of this world, but they'll never quench. Sin is fun, but it doesn't quench and it doesn't last. Jesus says, come to me. I am the living waters and I will quench the thirst that you long for. Relationships will not do it. Ladies, men won't do it. Guys, success and jobs won't do it. Jesus Christ is the only one who can quench your thirst. So a divine vision, a divine blessing quenches people's true spiritual thirst. Number five, a divine vision will inspire praise for God from God's people. Inspire praise for God from God's people. Look at verse 21. This is the whole reason why it gives us a vision for your life, for this church. The people that I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Isn't that amazing? The people I have formed, they shall declare my praise. So here's the question I want to leave you guys with. What is God doing in your life? Over the next 12 months, what new thing does he want to do? In a world full of despair, in a world full of discouragement, a world where there is no hope, listen, you have the hope of the world because we serve a king that cannot be shaken. We have a coming kingdom that's eternal. No hurricane, no earthquake, no flood can destroy God's blessings on your life. Even if we die today, we inherit forever with a perfect body, a perfect home, everything. So the question I want to leave you with is, what new thing does God want to do in your life? The final picture I want to put in your mind is, what if everyone at Arden first saw himself or herself as a missionary? You think about a missionary, they usually go to a foreign place. You think about, right, learn the language, speak the culture, learn to eat the food. And they do that so they can present the gospel to every man, woman, and child. What if where you live at, in Arden, Fletcher, Hendersonville, Inca, Asheville, uh, wherever you come from, if you saw yourself, I'm a missionary, and I'm going to learn to speak the language, and I'm going to learn to reach the people, not changing my morals, not changing who I am, but as Paul said, I become all things to all people, so by all means I may win some for Christ. Amen. So your take-home truth is this. God is doing a new thing. And he wants you and I to join him. So what is your next step? After we close and take up an offering, I want to encourage everybody before you dart out to lunch, take a look at these small groups. Take a look at it because we're not doing this just to fill classes. We're doing this to fill your lives with God, with God's people. Because we know God is doing a new thing and he wants to do it in you and he wants to do it in and through this church. Amen.
So some lunch questions as you uh, talk about the text and the message, things to think about over lunch is this. Number one, why am I resistant to change? If you can't answer that, your spouse can probably answer it for you. Number two, if I embrace what God is doing in my life, how will my life change next year? See, you have all of God, but he doesn't have all of you. What would happen if God got all of you this year? You didn't hold back. And number three, as a church, what do we need to change to embrace what God's doing? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're the God who changes not, yet you love change in our lives. And Father, my prayer is that you would produce change in us and through us. And God, I know that we resist change. We gave five reasons why we resist change. But Lord, help us realize that change is for God's glory and for the good of others. Right now, with everyone praying, no one looking around, I want to speak first to the believer. How many would say, Timothy, you know, uh, you talk about resisting change and living in the good old days. I find myself doing that quite often. Pray for me that God will give me a heart that's moldable like clay. So I will be moldable to do whatever God wants me to do. And I will embrace the new thing versus the old thing. That's you. Raise your hand. I'm raising my hands with you. Father, you see the hands. Do a work in us like only you can do. Forgive us for our resisting change. Help us to enjoy the past but not live in the past. As we look forward to what you're going to do in 2017 and beyond. And while the believers are still praying, is there anyone that would say, Timothy, you know, I know my first decision is to embrace change by becoming a new creation. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never asked Jesus to come into your life and forgive you your sins, the Bible says this is what's called being born again, receiving what Christ did for you. So right where you're sitting, in your own words, to say, Jesus, the new thing that I need is to become a new person. I want my old life to be gone and I want a new life in Christ. So Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I turn from them. Step out of heaven and into my heart. Jesus, I make you my Lord and Savior. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, please see one of us at the end of the service. Father, you see our hearts. Thank you for the new thing you're doing here, Arden First. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time during our final song, if you'll stand. If you have any new things in your life that you want to pray about, Adam, Judy, myself will be at the front. And if you want to join the church or make any decision, we'll be here to pray with you and for you. So respond as the Lord leads.